Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, it's the Friday News Roundup. I'm with CityCast Mallory Falk and Francesca DeBecco talking about book bans, the very seasonal and very local pawpaw, and a documentary about Pittsburgh police in the late 60s. It's Friday, September 23rd. I'm Morgan Moody, and this is CityCast Pittsburgh. We've got the same crew (laughs) from last week. We're keeping it consistent. Newsletter editor Francesca DeBecco. Hello. Hey, Morgan. Hey. And producer Mallory Falk. Hey. Hello. I got a stack of books. Um, I feel like I've been ready to settle down with this fall. I don't know if it'll happen, but fingers crossed. Well, I'm curious, uh, speaking of books, um, when you were growing up, did either of you have like a kind of controversial or maybe even scandalous book that you loved or, or maybe just like stumbled on a book that meant a lot to you? There was this book called the coldest winter ever and it was like a little erotic um you know for like teens but um it was like yeah it was banned at our school they didn't want us reading it but it was still yeah it was a book that was passed around and you know girls really we, we related to it it was just like a little a little escape and this was a Catholic private school. Yeah, it was Catholic school. So, you know, they don't want us reading stuff like that. But it was a great book. <laughs> this was when there was teen romance that didn't just involve vampires and yeah. heavy breathing look, from a distance. PG-13 content. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't really think of one when I was younger, but a more recent one, which I've seen made actually one of the top banned books uh, in recent years, is Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Uh, mm. That's written by local author Jesse Andrews. I uh, I read that book. Um, not going to lie, I picked it up because it was about a girl with cancer. <laughs> and I was like, oh, relatable. <laughs> so anyways, uh, yeah, it's got some people complaining about dirty things in there when it's a teen book. But uh, I don't know. I feel like it wasn't too bad too raunchy it's yeah all what kids talk about anyways i think that's one that they tried to ban in a nearby school district elizabethtown and the author like you mentioned is local and kind of spoke out against it yeah speaking of book banning it is banned book week um a week celebrating stories and voices that have been censored And it feels especially meaningful this year when we're seeing so many attempts to ban or restrict access to school books all over the country, like that attempts to ban Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. Yeah, I feel like there's been so many book bans over the last couple years. It really happens in surges. Yeah, it does. And there are a couple of reports that just came out that are confirming that these bans are happening at like a really intense rate right now. Um, So the American Library Association just put out a report. They've been compiling censorship data for more than 20 years. Wow. Um, Last school year was the most attempted book bans they'd ever counted in that time. And their new report says that this year we're on track to exceed that number. Wow. Um, And then I'm about to throw a bunch of numbers at you. Um, Penn America also just put out a report, and it found that in the past year, there were more than 2,500 attempted book bans targeting more than 1,600 different books in 138 school districts across the country. And it actually turns out that right here in Pennsylvania, we have the third most book bans in the country. I have to assume that 
a lot of these books are about what LGBTQT plus people, people of color. Yeah, you are right. Um, according to that Pen America report, 41% of the books on that list um, have LGBTQ plus themes or main characters, um, and 40% focus on people of color. And Mallory, you've done some actual like in-depth reporting on this, right? Yeah, so last spring, I talked to some students who successfully fought a book ban. Um, they were in central PA in the Central York School District. Um, and so they held peaceful protests outside their high school every morning before class. That got a lot of attention, um, and eventually the school board reversed the ban. What what books were they banning? Didn't that school board ban some like really ridiculous books? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of why it got so much attention was, yeah. you know, some of the books that were on the list are have been targeted in a ton of different school districts, um, like The Hate You Give, which is about police brutality. But there were also books on the list, like a children's picture book about Rosa Parks and Malala Yousafzai's autobiography. The district just kind of did this like blanket ban on a resource list that some educators had come up with after uh, the police killing of George Floyd. Wow. Um, wow. But, you know, one of the things that was so striking to me when I was working on this story is the way that these bands actually put new books on students' radars, kind of the way like Band Book Week is about celebrating yeah. some of these books and drawing attention to them. So Yeah, it's like, you know, don't tell me what not to read. I'm going to read it like three times now. Yeah, yeah exactly. it just incentivizes them. Yeah. Right. I think there's a saying of like the best way to get a kid to read a book is to ban it. Um, <laughs> and so I, t I, had, I talked to this one student um, whose name is Eli, um, and he had tuned into this school board meeting in Central York where these adults were kind of railing against one particular book, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's this memoir about growing up black and queer. Um, and last school year, it was actually the second most banned book in the country, according to that Pan America report. Um, and so I talked to Eli back when I was a reporter at WHYY, and uh, this is what he had to say funny thing is all of those people were like we need to keep the kids away from reading this prevent them from seeing it at all costs yet them doing that is exactly what brought it to my attention to read it so this book obviously had an impact on this kid and his representation of himself that he saw he decided to read this book just to kind of see what the adults were talking about. And um, it ended up having this really like transformative effect on him because the author wrote about being sexually assaulted when he was a young adult. Um, and Eli had actually gone through a very similar experience. It was something he'd felt a lot of guilt and shame about. And he said that reading Johnson's account um, actually reframed his own understanding of what had happened to him. It's really universally cosmic how them being so hateful and so outwardly just disgusting towards us and towards this book, everything actually helped heal me. I feel people can really find themselves, you know, in, in a book and kind of see, you know, what they're going through, what this character is going through and really relate and... um I don't know. I just think that books are so important for doing that. So I, I, I'd hate to see a book that has changed so many people's lives for the better uh, end up on a banned list. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, he's also his story is proof that like this stuff happens in real life. Yeah. And so trying to censor and shield young adults, young people from things that actually happen. Mm, yeah. 
representation matters. And Very much I so. really empathize with him. I always think about the books that I kind of wish that I would have had as a child. I do feel like there's now a lot more books on um, things like the the tense relationship between, you know, black people and the police in the United States. I don't know if there were that many when I was younger, but I certainly remember a lot of the stories um, that were coming out, you know, about um, people getting either, you know, beat up or killed by police. Um, the relationship here in Pittsburgh, it's been documented over the years. It's not great. You know, um, recent example, there's Leon Ford, Jim Rogers, um, Antoine Rose, uh, all injured or um, killed by uh, police, deadly police force, including Johnny Gamage, which is um, the anniversary of his death is actually coming up on October 12th. Um, but a documentary showing the relationship between Black Pittsburgh and police during the late 60s is going to be showing here. And it's called Pittsburgh Police 1969. A well-known documentarian, uh, John Marshall, shot, edited, and directed the whole thing. It's a bunch of short films that he shot here in Pittsburgh from 1968 uh, through 1969. And he basically embedded himself with the the police department and filmed um, police responding to calls on the north side. It's a pretty decent watch. It's about three hours of uh, black and white cinema verite footage. Morgan, what does that mean? Like, what kind of film style is that? So it's a French film movement from the 60s, which when this is shot, so, you know, very of the time. But it shows people from, like, an observational lens. Uh, the article that I was reading about this film, Bill O'Driscoll from WESA wrote it, and he described it, he described the film as, like, an early version of the show Cops, the 90s show. Mm. Yeah, Cops, like, kind of like you're you're sitting there watching bad it because there's no narration. Boys. Yeah, I was going to say, do you remember that? Do you remember that show? Unfortunately, I do. They used to yeah. record here in Pittsburgh. I remember, like, in the 90s, they would be in um, East Liberty and Garfield, where I lived, and uh, fond memories. Didn't they like, wasn't there finally pushback against that show and it kind of came to an end recently? Yeah. yeah, I think they were like still in Pittsburgh up until what, a few years ago? Mm. Mm, that does not surprise me. But I never watched it. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't say I've ever seen it. Yeah, but the guy behind it is a very, you know, well renowned um, filmmaker. But He's behind I this haven't... documentary, not behind the guy behind Cops. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Making that yeah. clear. Let me let me differentiate. Yes, <laughs> John Marshall, state. the John Marshall, the filmmaker, the cinema verite filmmaker behind this documentary, Pittsburgh Police, nineteen sixty nine, not the show Cops, is a very well known documentarian. Um, I haven't seen any of his other documentaries, but he shot films about like indigenous hunter gatherer groups in Africa. So what brought him here to Pittsburgh to, you know, take on our police force? Yeah, apparently it was part of a project for the study of violence at Brandeis University. Um, they were kind of just going around to different cities, so places like Pittsburgh, um, to see, to kind of measure the temperature of what was going on in the country after uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. So... I can imagine anything that is reminiscent uh, to cops through and during the 60s. You know, I mean, I can imagine what that looks like on film. 
I'm surprised the police let him film them. I mean, I know now this isn't the case in Pittsburgh, but there are some places where you, you can't even get within so many feet of a cop while you're recording. You know, yeah, since, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, places are passing these restrictions. So, I mean, I'm shocked that at the time he could get this kind of access. I should, yeah, and I should differentiate. You know what I mean? This isn't some um, run and gun documentarian. You know, John Marshall actually got permission to film from municipal and police officials mm. here. Right. So maybe at that time they thought, you know, any attention was good attention. They probably didn't realize 60 years down the road that this footage uh-huh. does not look great on them. Um, you know, because in Pittsburgh, relations between police and the black community, not good, never really has been. Um, and a report from a couple years ago from the Abolitionist Law Center in 2020 showed that black people in Pittsburgh are disproportionately arrested, incarcerated. Um, Mm -hmm. From the report, it says that while black residents make up roughly 23% um, of the population here in Pittsburgh, they account for 63% of all arrests Mm -hmm. uh, conducted by the Pittsburgh police. Yeah, at least in 2019. Mm -hmm. And our producer, Megan Harris, isn't with us right now, but she did pull up the new city numbers, which somehow are even worse. In 2020, (sighs) 65% of all arrests made by the Pittsburgh police were that of Black people. In 2021, it was 64%. Wow. And supposedly, you know, this is a time where less things are supposed to be happening, you know, right. during the pandemic. Yeah. Less people are out and about, and we're supposed to be more conscious of these things. And there were supposed to be less people in the jails to prevent overcrowding because of COVID. But... I don't know. Uh, For the county, ALC Court Watch found that black men who make up less than 7% of the county population made up 44% of all misdemeanor defendants. So, yeah, it's uh, some interesting stats, but not much seems like it's, it's changed in Pittsburgh over the past several decades. And not much being done to change it. Not at all. You know, I can only hope that maybe this film and this history provides some context for these current discussions and sort of like the future of policing in our city. I Hopefully so. I'm sure it might generate some sort of dialogue. It'll certainly be an interesting watch. Um, so like I said, this is the local premiere of this film. It's at the Harris Theater starting today, September 23rd through next Wednesday, the 28th. Mm, yeah. It's a short window. Uh, to go see the film, but it's a little bit shorter, but almost as long as Pawpaw season. I- <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> it is. It's Pawpaw season. So who here has ever tried one? I have not. I've never even heard of it until yeah, recently. I did, until oh. you until you like dropped until you mentioned this, Francesca. It was not on my radar, and it's all I can think about now. Well, lucky you. I successfully acquired one for you all to try. Thanks to our friends at Grow Pittsburgh. (laughs) What is it? And why have I not seen it anywhere else but like this area? So it's not as nearly prevalent as it used to be, mostly due to industry. uh, But the papa is a native fruit to Appalachia with large seeds and a custardy inside that people often compare to a mix between a mango and a banana. Um, I think there's some cantaloupe notes in there too. Uh, It's 
really amazing how this tropical tasting fruit can grow in our backyard. Yeah, that does not sound like something that would come from this region. Right? Not at all. Right. Um, and they're really important to indigenous culture, particularly the Shawnee tribe, which the Allegheny Front did a really great story about. We can link mm-hmm. in the show notes. So the Shawnee marked time by phases of the moon, and they used the fruit to mark one of those phases. So their name for the month of September means Papa Moon. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, but basically, it indicated the time of year that they were ripe and it was ready to go pick them. That's really fascinating. So you said they're not so common anymore, but where can we find them? Yeah, because I've never seen them in a store. Yeah, sometimes in the wild, if you look hard enough, but the trees aren't always fruiting. Mm. Um, The good news is is that a lot of folks in the region are getting interested and investing in growing pawpaws. So you can find them at festivals like the West Virginia Pawpaw Festival that's this Saturday in Morgantown. Mm. Or um, you might be able to find them at the East End Food Co-op. Um, I stopped by Grow Pittsburgh's Garden Dreams Urban Farm and Nursery in Wilkinsburg this week where Papa aficionado and field archaeologist Gabrielle Marsden was hosting a tasting. Wow. Um, so there's two more happening this season, Tuesday, September 27th and October 4th. So you can go there and uh, give it a try. <laughs> That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Our team this week includes Megan Harris, Mallory Falk, Meg Dalton, Francesca DeBecco, and me, Morgan Moody. Music is by Benji, who is on tour right now with Earth Gang. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city, so we will see you then. Have a good weekend. I'm going to cut it up. She's very ripe. And I'll give you all a chance to sniff it first because it has a pretty pungent smell. Ooh, it looks like a potato on the outside, but a mango on the inside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think it smells like? A potato. <laughs> a potato? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Does it? To you? Okay, no, it smells like fruit. I don't know. It just smells like red fruit. Now, be careful. Don't eat the seeds, but just like take it and then spit out the seeds. So, like, Oh, don't eat the skin either. Okay. This is a fussy fruit, Francesca. It is, it is. <laughs> I definitely taste cantaloupe. Um, it has the texture of like mango and banana, but I taste cantaloupe. It's like if you made a cantaloupe banana mango smoothie mm. and then converted it back into a fruit. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't love it, but I'm glad I tried it. <laughs>